it, let me tell you a true story. Um, about eight years ago, I was working in the Ministry of Defence, and it was lunchtime. And usually, lunch consisted of a Mars bar and a sandwich. And I hadn't yet gone down to get my Mars bar and a sandwich. And my superintending clerk, uh, a charming warrant officer called Bill Kemp, who really ran the directorate but allowed me to imagine that I did, came and, and with that sort of persuasive look that warrant officers have, said, um, you're going to be a bit late for your lunch appointment, sir. I said, lunch appointment? Lunch? He said, you're going to meet your agent. You're going to have lunch with him, and you've got that big idea, which he's going to make your fortune. And I realized with absolute clarity that I had agreed to have lunch with my agent, and I had promised him that I would have a big idea. Um, what had happened, of course, is I had had no big idea. I was now almost late for lunch. So I ran from the Ministry of Defense all the way to St. Martin's Lane, where we were having lunch in an Italian restaurant. And as I approached, there was my agent. And with him was a, a senior member of a large publishing house. And they had a bottle of Pinot Grigio on the table. And as I appeared, my, my then agent said, Ah, Richard, dear boy, dear boy, have a glass of Pinot Grigio and tell us about your great idea. And as the, the, the Pinot Grigio hit, hit the glass, I thought, without divine intervention, I'm doomed. But by the time I had the glass in my hand, I knew with absolute certainty what I was going to do. And whether that is divine intervention or whether it's the rat-like cunning that comes to you in moments like that, I don't know. But, but in all conscience, by the time I sat down, I knew that I was going to write the trilogy called Redcoat and Tommy and Saab. Uh, and they would all be not about the British Army, but about the British soldier. So they'd be people-focused. And I'd go back to what people wrote at the time. So they'd either be based on letters and diaries and memoirs, or uh, hopefully they'd be based on um, things that were in archives. And I'd start with a broad look at the army from about 1750 to 1850, and that would be Redcoat. I'd then do the British soldier on the Western Front, which was going to be Tommy, which I knew would nearly kill me, because however positive you are about the First World War, it's a subject that breaks your heart and I knew it would. And then I was going to indulge myself in Saab, which was going to be about the British soldier in India. And, and there I was, and I drank the Pinot Grigio. I didn't stop, I'm happy to say, at one glass. I drank the Pinot Grigio, and I, the idea was clear in my mind, and that, that really is what happened. I mean, the rest, in a sense, is history. I wrote Tommy, which, which went well. Um, I wrote uh, so I wrote Redcoat, which went well. I then wrote Tommy, which, as I'd suspected, did break my heart um, and made me gloomy. And I then went back to oh, the, the, the old India Office Library, now the Oriental and India Office Collections, the British Library, to do Saab. And I wanted to write about the British soldier in India. And that's what the book's about. It's, it's not about the Indian Army. Um, to do that, I would need to speak at least one or probably several indigenous languages, and I don't. It, the Indian Army has been done quite well by Philip Mason and by Tony Heathcote. It was going to be about, about Atkins in India. And the central paradox really is this, that in 1837, the year that Queen Victoria comes to the throne, there were about 41,000 Europeans in India. Of that 41,000, 37,000 were soldiers. 1,000 were in the civil service. About 
30,000 people of mixed race, 200,000 Indian troops, and more than 15 million, probably an underestimate, Indians. Uh, and the paradox that underlies my story, both tonight's story that I'm talking about and the book, is the preservation of one of the largest empires in world history by so few people. I mean, how does British India actually work? Um, and of course I've got a view about British India. What I'm not going to do is to tell you that the British Empire was always a great and good thing. But I think that as empires go, by and large, it was a good thing rather than a bad thing. I think that it did some, a lot of things well, some things badly. Um, my period is 1750 to 1914, and in the middle of that you have the Indian Mutiny, which I think throws little luster on either side. So I'm not going to try to persuade you that the people that I'm talking about always behave perfectly. But I do think that this was an empire maintained for much of its time with good intention and maintained with a surprising degree of trust and honesty. Like many empires, it worked because the new imperial power, the Brits, took over from the Mughal Empire. And in a sense, I'll finish up saying this, but, but Kipling, who at his best, I think, wrote wonderfully about India, Kipling described India, this world ruled by Mughal, Maratha, Mlek, Mlek meaning ritually unclean in, in the Hindu sense, Mughal, Maratha, Mlek from the north, the white queen over the sea, God rises them up, God drives them forth, the dust of the plowshare flies in the breeze, the sheep and the cattle are all our care, and the rest is the will of God. Wonderful village India rolling on despite generation and generation of conqueror. And what in a sense the British did is fitted into that pattern. And that's what I wanted to write about and what, to, what I wanted to talk about. So it's neither a defense nor an attack on empire. I, I look upon empire as a historical fact. I'm concerned with the period 1750 to 1914. Why didn't I go beyond 1914? It's already quite a fat book. And to have gone beyond 1914, to have looked at the British soldier in India in the First World War and the Second World War, would have killed me, and you'd needed a wheelbarrow for the book. So 1914 was a cut-off date. It'll, it'll probably offend those of you who are in the Bengal sappers and miners, and who, if only I'd extended it until the Second World War, I might well have mentioned you. I, I'm sorry. Um, I called it Saab. Depending on where you are in India, sometimes pronounced Saab in the north, often more pronounced Saib in the south. Funny old word, but it was in a way as typical as Redcoat or Tommy. Um, it's more like Monsieur rather than Mister. Saab is a, a title that you can attach to a name. So Colonel Saab uh, or Raja Saab or Subhanahu Major Saab. So you can use it across a racial or caste divide as a way of giving someone a little dignity and approving of them. It doesn't always mean a white man, although in my context it generally does. Three categories of British soldier in India. Um, I'm interested in mercenaries. Hard word, actually, and left to my own devices, I would prefer soldiers of fortune. 
but the first British soldiers in India were had gone there to make money, um, and I'll talk about them in a minute. Wonderful, colourful, often not wholly honest or wholly sober men, mercenaries, I suppose. Awful word. The next category are the officers and NCOs of the East India Company's army, employed not by the British government for most of my period, but by the East India Company. And thirdly, the officers and men of Her Majesty's or His Majesty's, depending, army serving in India. So there were these three distinct categories of British soldiers in India. In fact, it was possible, and some did, to slip between them. Some mercenaries got commissions from the company or the monarch. Um, some people with the Queen's Commission lost it and joined the company. Some people did rather well with the company and could afford a King's Commission. So they're not distinct. But I just want to give you that idea of three categories. Mercenaries serving Indian princes, officers and NCOs serving the company, and British officers and NCOs in the British Army, but in India. Now, I'm not going to deal chronologically with the subject. There's no exam at the end, you'll be pleased to hear. So this is an impressionistic talk, but it will help your impressions if I give you a feel for what India is like in terms of size. If you think of it looking like an elephant's head, because that's what it looks so much like, doesn't it? With, on, for one ear, we have um, Burma sort of hanging down. For the other ear, we have Persia flapping up a bit. But if we think of the, of the great beast, um, its brow, furrowed brow, has got the, the Himalayas and the Karakoram and the Hindu Kush. The tip of its trunk is about to swallow Ceylon as it was then, or Sri Lanka as it is now. Um, 1,300 miles from eye to eye, from Bombay to Calcutta. About 2,000 miles from the middle of its forehead down to the tip of its trunk from Calcutta to Cape Comorin in the south. Huge distances. Um, the sheer scale of India and the geographical variety of India. You've got everything from um, rainforests, jungles lashed by the monsoon, great deserts, high mountains. Getting about was hugely difficult and took an awfully long time until the railway comes. First railway in 1853, um, by 1869, 4,000 lines of 4,000 miles of railway. By 1909, 32,000 miles of railway. Uh, an awful lot of railway very quickly because laying the railway enabled you to com communicate. Before then, people who went to India walked. And most of the people that I'll be describing crossed this great landscape on their feet. It's not just geographically varied, it's varied in terms of climate. Um, a wonderful chap called Captain Osborne. Captain Osborne goes off and is on a, a mission to Ranjit Singh, the great leader of the Sikh nation. And he's in the Punjab in a temperature of 113 degrees in the shade. And the only way that the good Captain Osborne survived was by having a hole dug in the middle of his tent, lined with tarpaulin. He would remove all his clothes. He would sit on a chair in the hole, in the tarpaulin, under the tent, and his bearer would throw cold water over him all the time. Now, unfortunately, his bearer also threw snakes over him from time to time because they got into the water. But, but in a sense, 
that that's India for you, isn't it? And some of the fighting in the Indian Mutiny went on in a temperature of 130 degrees in the shade. So ferociously hot. In the monsoon, you might get eight inches of rain in 24 hours. In the winter, parts of India were so cold that men simply froze to death by, by simply be, being outside. Um, you can't think of anybody dominating this great elephant's head without sea power. And in one sense, the secret to British dominion in India is sea power. It's easier to get round the elephant's head by sea than it is to move about it on the land, particularly if you've got ships of the line which are able to sail against the monsoon, which most local vessels couldn't. So in one sense, none of this, none of my story could have been told without the Royal Navy. So ex-Matlows in the audience are able to look a bit, a bit smug and satisfied. One of the, the great features, I think, about the British Army across history is it does depend on the Royal Navy seizing that particular theatre of war first. Okay. For much of the time, uh, until really 1858, India is not run by the British government. India is run by a commercial company called the Honourable East India Company. And the Honourable East India Company, based in London, had been founded in 1600 and was a commercial company. It was a commercial company which ran India as three things called presidencies, um, one, in, uh, one in Madras, down here on the elephant, one in Bombay, up here, and the senior one based on Calcutta in Bengal, sort of this side of the elephant's face. And the senior of the three governors who became the governor general, later styled the viceroy, is the guy based in Calcutta, who's the governor general of Bengal. Um, each of these three presidencies maintains its own army. And what we'd have seen throughout my period is the gradual encroachment of the company's rule. And the company did it in a pretty subtle way. It did it by collaborating as much as it could with the Mughal emperor, um, being given tax-collecting rights by the emperor, trying not to defeat the emperor too obviously, um, depriving him of various powers. And eventually the emperor has been reduced to a chap called the King of Delhi, and the King of Delhi is alive and well and in some honorific symbolic power until 1857-58. And gradually the company does two things. It beats foreign rivals, and in particular it beats the French. It also beats local Indian rivals, and we think of battles like Plassey in 1757 and Buxar in 1764. Now, in all of these, particularly in Plassey, all of these are very Indian. That is to say, you try to buy off your opponent before you actually fight him. And much as I sympathize with a sort of boy's own storybook approach to battles like Plassey, usually what we've done is bought off the enemy commander's younger brothers. Um, we have given his girlfriend a large amount of money um, to make him unhappy. We've pinched the plans. We've stolen the gunpowder. 
we've done all sorts of things that ensure that the battle goes our way if we possibly can. Um, we've also, and I'll come on to this in a minute, consistently got better military organization than the Indians. One of the striking things is how big Indian armies are. They're vast, because every fighting man needs somebody to look after his horse. He needs a grass cutter to cut the grass for the horse. The size the groom needs a camp follower. Uh, the grass cutter needs a camp follower or two. They all require untouchables to do those tasks in camp that nobody can do without losing caste. There's then a whole lot of jugglers, conjurers, perfume sellers, leather makers, metalsmiths, uh, ladies of the night, opium sellers, following an Indian army like a great comet's tail. So when we read of, you know, Plassey, you have tens of thousands of Indian soldiers beaten by a happy few British. You have tens of thousands of Indians at or near the battlefield, but the fighting bit is always relatively small. And that's quite characteristic throughout the, the 18th and the early 19th century. Now, the, the Honorable East India Company is a commercial company. It's designed to make money, and believe me, it does. Um, it's seldom, I think, been easier to make huge sums of money moderately legally, uh, up to and including Big Bang, I would say. If we take one chap there, a chap called Sir Thomas Rumbold, um, governor of Madras, 1778 to, 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 to 1780, he made some 750,000 pounds during that time. Um, uh, multiply by 20 today. Um, these are huge sums of money. And what happens is that these individuals make their money, come back to England, and are known as nabobs. A nabob is a corruption of the Indian nawab, a mogul, mogul word for ruler. And of course they come back and they immediately purchase titles, and nothing at all new there. Um, they purchase large country houses, they buy themselves seats in Parliament, and they exasperate everybody else because they, they completely distort the British political scene. Um, and people who have been cautiously buying their way up the social scale are exasperated to have these chaps buy over their heads. And proper landed gents, whose grandfathers bought their way in, greatly resent these Arivis to arrive. Unless, of course, the Arivis wants to marry their daughter um, when, when it's all right. So, so the East India Company, through the nabobs, bring lots, brings lots of money in. And in the process, um, it, it continues to expand across India. And I'm not going to give you a blow-by-blow -blow account of all the wars that we have, but we have wars against um, Tipu Sultan of Mysore. We have wars against the Marathas. The Marathas are very serious coves indeed, actually, and they um, run a large tract of central India. Um, horsemen, Hindu, uh, chainmail, spiked helmets with curtains of mail, good, good soldiers. Um, after them, we have Sikh wars. By now, we've moved up slightly, and we're somewhere near the, the, the right eyebrow. And the Sikhs, again, formidable opponents, probably the most serious opponents that the company ever took on. Uh, in 1857, the Indian Mutiny, which is almost like a great scar, cutting across the history of British India. Crown rule comes in in 1858. Thereafter, the company's powers pass to the crown. Um, a series of other wars, again, Second Afghan War, 1870s, 1880s. So 
a gradual process of this elephant's face changing colour as first the company and then the British crown beats local rivals. Well, to get to India for most of my period took you about six months. It would take you six months if you went on an East Indiaman because, of course, you had to go round the Cape of Good Hope. If you were really lucky and went lightning fast, you would go on a tea clipper, which took you only three months. By the 1830s, a lot of people went not round the Cape of Good Hope, but they went through the Mediterranean, overland, following the route that the Suez Canal now follows, and then by a steamer, steamers with extremely fierce captains. There was something about um, sea captains in India that brought out the worst in people. I mean, really curmudgeonly captains of paddle steamers, which would take you um, from Suez round to India, and that process took you a mere two months. By the end of my period, you can do it in troopship um, from Portsmouth to Bombay in just 21 days. Now, if you are lucky enough to be an officer, that's fine, because you're sitting on the deck having yet another gin fizz looking out over the sea. If, however, you're a private soldier, you are three decks down, not allowed on the main deck, because you will spoil the view, um, playing the forbidden game of Crown and Anchor and hoping that someone has smuggled some booze aboard. Risky. Probably, in the 18th century, a one in ten chance of being killed by some sort of misfortune on your way to India. Um, East Indiamen catch fire, blow up, get lost. In 1825, the Kent catches fire in the Bay of Biscay um, with a regiment of foot aboard, 51 soldiers, uh, one woman and 21 children were drowned. 1858, the Sarah Sands, caught fire off Mauritius, was saved. January 1831, the East Indiaman Guildford vanished completely. We've got no idea what happened to the Guildford. The chances are that she went down in a tropical cyclone, but tantalizingly, uh, a lady called Anne Pressgrave, who'd been on the Guildford, turned up uh, being sold to a Malay chief in what's now Brunei not long afterwards. So there was a chance that the Guildford had been taken by pirates and that some of her passengers could have been taken off and she'd then been sunk. And that's one of those things that wish, makes me wish I had more time. I mean, how wonderful it would be to burrow away here or in the British Library and to try and find out what really happened to Anne Presgrave. Um, you'd think you'd be safe enough going to India, wouldn't you? Well, she wasn't. When you got to India, you either arrived, to start with, most people did at Calcutta, um, difficult because you arrived at the mouth of the River Hooghly with lots of sandbars, and having had a difficult sea captain, I mean, one East Indiaman, the captain of East Indiaman, put an army officer in irons for daring to whistle in his presence. So you can imagine, you, you would then get a Hoogley pilot, and the Hoogley pilots were hard-drinking and hard-smoking men, and they would take over the ship to get up the Hoogley to Calcutta because there were lots of shifting sands, and without a Hoogley pilot, you would collide with the shifting sand. If you didn't go to uh, Calcutta, you might well go to Madras. This was even more of a problem because for much of the time, there was no port there. So you had to go onto the open beach through great big breakers, and there were, there were local boatmen who would row out and take you ashore. 
but people were always being lost. And it was noticeable that the officers of the garrison used to come down because many of, many of the ladies had not, how shall I put this delicately, reckoned with the effect of cold water on muslin dresses. <laughs> so you had lots of young officers in the garrison scrambling around in the surf, offering to give a hand, I fear, often in the most literal sense, um, to some of the prettier ladies as they came through the surf. Bit of a shock. Bombay doesn't become a really major port until towards the end of my period, uh, and it became a major port by the time the railway had been established. And one of the many examples of an Indian word which has gone down in, in, into, into English, the first railway station out of Bombay was a place called, technically, Deolali, but called by us, of course, Dulali. And it was the last place that you were in India if you were being sent back home because you'd overdone, as many did, and, and you got through that what was known as the Dulali Tap. Uh, and you'd go straight from Dulali onto the boat and finish up at Netley. The Dulali Tap, um, that's uh, mental illness usually induced by a hot climate and strong drink. Having arrived in your chosen port of call, you would then usually, until after the mutiny, march to where you went to be going. And this might take you three months. And for many Englishmen, I mean, Kipling again gets it absolutely right when he's describing um, 800 fighting Englishmen, the colonel and the band, thumping their way up the Grand Trunk Road. And the Grand Trunk is the main artery of British India, connecting Calcutta running across the forehead and eventually finishing up in Peshawar. So you might be doing three months of not too much, 15 miles a day. Um, day in, day out, as Kipling puts it, every blooming camping ground exactly like the last, until you eventually finish up in your chosen destination, which is a cantonment. And a cantonment is a military community, um, often with its own name. Allahabad's cantonment is called Cannington. Lahore's cantonment is called Myanmar. Um, it's a military settlement on the edge of a town, usually separated from the town by a maidan, by a large um, playing field, polo ground, cricket pitch, all of those things and more to give a little bit of space, particularly after the mutiny, so that the cantonment can overawe the town and won't be swamped by a riot. And having arrived there, you move into, into barracks. And Indian barracks were um, notoriously unhealthy. 58 deaths per thousand men per year in Indian barracks in 1852. Um, the equivalent in Britain was 17 per thousand men. But as the 19th century wore on, barracks got better built, more airy, and probably most soldiers lived better in barracks than they would have done back in England. Um, Officers lived in bungalows, if married, uh, if not, in things called chummeries. And chummeries are w where a number of young officers would club together and live in a bungalow. Um, chummeries are always a bit suspect by older and more crusty officers because they tended to be slipshod. I mean, slipshod means literally to go about in slippers. And people would go about in slippers and loose clothing called pyjamas, not pyjamas as you and I understand it, but a sort of shalvar kameez. And if you didn't watch it, your young officers would sort of go native. They'd, wear, they'd be slipshod and pyjama clad all the time. They'd drink too much. 
they'd be remiss about shaving at weekends, and I don't even imagine the other things that they would probably get up to. This is a this is a separate world. It's a world with its own status and cynics, and there were many cynics about British India, said that what we did is we went to India, we then created a caste system which was almost as elaborate as the caste system of, uh, uh, as that of the Hindus. Um, at the top of the caste system came the civil service, but it was clearly much better to be in the civil service than anything else. Tiny, a thousand men, and I mean men, sadly, for, for all my time. Um, small, expert, um, hugely powerful and well paid um, not simply well paid but a guaranteed pension you know a thousand a year dead or alive they were known as uh, and so enormously attractive if you happen to be a member of what was unkindly called the fishing fleet and these are ladies that turn up at Bombay in search of romance leading to a husband and you know the civil service was the was the best army officers come next and for most of British India, that's British army officers with the Queen's Commission, proper riveted joint job, pursued at some distance by officers in the company's army, not quite the thing, my dear, not quite the same, but better than the third major group, British other ranks. Um, and British other ranks in India found themselves living often much better than they ever could have done in England, but aware that, the only, that what really made them different was the colour of their skin. That set them apart from the great mass of the labouring population. Um, and when the empire goes wrong over things like racism, it often goes wrong not from the top, but from the bottom, where you've got British other ranks and people like indigo planters aware that their status depends more on racial difference than, than anything else. Nonetheless, Kipling doesn't get it far wrong when he's describing Leroyd, Othoris and Mulvaney, those three British soldiers that he describes in India. Um, it was provided you didn't die of something loathsome or get eaten by a tiger, bitten by a snake or carried off by dacoits, all of which were quite likely. It, it was a place that raised you almost to social class. Uh, if a British soldier in India, you're awakened on your first morning by somebody saying, shave, sub. Uh, and this is the nappy waller who comes to shave you in bed. Um, no sooner have you, in your half-sleepy state, been shaved, then the char waller will come around. Char from chai, Hindi for tea, uh, and he will give you a cup of tea. And all of this costs almost nothing. At the end of the month, of course, it all adds up and it costs exactly what your pay might have been had you not spent it on the nappy waller and the charwaller uh, and so on. But, but actually, you didn't work terribly hard and there were lots of jobs, more in, of this in a minute, which you might take on if you decided to take your discharge in India. Um, you didn't work hugely hard whether you were an officer or a soldier. Officers and soldiers... Um, went, 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 went shooting, or shikar. This isn't just an officer sport. Um, the most extreme example I've found is a chap called Lieutenant William, William Price, who kills 22 tigers, um, five bears, 81 deer in a single shooting expedition. Um, 
soldiers went shooting as well. They preferred to fish. Um, so fishing was very popular. Also, butterfly collecting was hugely popular. It, it was the thrill of the chase without a very dangerous quarry at the end of it. And you could then fasten butterflies into a box and probably sell them to one of the colonel's daughters for an exorbitant fee. And what she would then do is bring them back to England. And those butterfly collections that in my youth you could find in junk shops were often started by British soldiers in India. Um, pig sticking, and again, this is deeply politically incorrect, but pig sticking is the pursuit of wild boars by mounted men on with spears. It was hugely popular. Uh, and one of the attractions was that it gave you a good feel for the country. It enabled you to get to know your area and to talk with natives. Uh, and it challenged your nerves. And it challenged your nerves because chasing boar armed only with a spear is dangerous. It's dangerous because you'd often break your neck by falling down a well. Many wells in India have got no well heads. They're what are called blind wells. So you don't know that you've got to the well until you're aware that you're going that way, not that way. And the, the boar, usually when you're in hot pursuit, when it realises it, it's losing the race, stops and turns on you. So British officers were regularly killed pig-sticking. In a single year, Her, Her Majesty's 76 foot loses three of its officers, that is 10% of its officers' strength, who are killed by um, tigers or fall-down wells or whatever. It's a doggy army, too. You'd expect it to be, wouldn't you? The British Army in India is covered with terriers and setters and this sort of dog and that sort of dog. Amongst the casualties at the Battle of Maiwand in 1880, are Captain, uh, Captain McMath's dog, Nelly, and Sergeant Kelly's dog, Bobby. Bobby, happily, is only wounded, um, gets the campaign medal for my wand, comes back to England, but sadly was run over by a cab in the Oxford Road in Reading, outside Brock Barracks, which is his regimental depot. So you, when, when, you were, when you weren't fighting, life wasn't bad. Uh, you were relatively well paid, and you'd almost advanced by social class. Now, I'm not going to flog through the chain of command in India. The big difference, though, that you'd have noticed between the chain of command in India and anywhere else was the use of military officers for political jobs, the politicals. Um, I could have written a book just about the politicals, and indeed, had Charles Allen not already written that very good book, Soldier Sabs, I probably would have done. I mean, these officers who go out as military officers but then get a political job, they remain with a military rank and a military uniform, but they run areas the size of Wales. I'll give you an example Captain Neville Chamberlain, no relation, in 1856 is running a place called Hazara, which is about the size of Wales, and he describes himself as being he's the magistrate. He is the collector of taxes. He is the superintendent of police. He runs the jail. He is in charge of the treasury. He is the medical officer, although without qualification. He is the garrison chief engineer. He runs the post. He runs the commissariat. He commands a regiment of native infantry and two troops of native cavalry. And he does this at the age of 24. They were remarkable men. And whether you think the empire is a good thing or a bad thing or aren't sure doesn't matter. These are hugely self-confident young men who at an early age are running large tracts of India and usually, I think, do it pretty well. 
Um, again, if I had the time, I'd talk about it in the book, the brothers Henry John and, and George Lawrence, all of them making a great impact on um, British India, all, all of them um, imperial proconsuls and men of great vision and great courage. The most flamboyant is John Nicholson. Um, Osterman, serious, forgive me, serious Ulster Protestant, um, grey eyes that blaze like a tiger's, uh, a man who never experienced a minute of self-doubt, uh, and during the military, a temporary brigadier general at a ridiculously early age, was mortally wounded at storming Delhi while dying, and it's, it's sweltering hot, he's been shot in the stomach, so he's not a bundle of laughs. He, his fiercely loyal wild horsemen were outside his tent, ooing and ahhing, and Nicholson fired his pistol through the tent to make them stop. And he then heard that the commander-in-chief was thinking, who's a, a bit of a nervous old gentleman, was thinking of pulling back from Delhi. And Nicholson said, thank God I still have the strength left to shoot him. Uh, and Nicholson meant it. Uh, and we don't have to terribly like these young men, but it's hard not to admire them. This breathtaking confidence um, in people so young and the ability to make that confidence translate itself into the ability to rule, often without much military force to back you up. Um, so there you have a pattern of British India and political officers running things. Through this come um, the Queen's army for most of my time. At any given time, about a quarter of the British infantry was in India. Uh, and these are ordinary regiments of the line, quarter of the infantry, rather less cavalry, four regiments at almost any given time. Um, these guys haven't joined the army to go to India. One day they get the bad news that they're going. Um, the even worse news is that most of their wives won't be able to go. Uh, many regiments were in India for a long time. If I just run through some, the 6th foot is there from 1819 to 1842, the 49th from 1819 to 1843, the 67th from 1805 to 1826. Doing 20 to 30 years in India is not unusual, and nobody who goes out with the regiment will come back with it. I mean, this is a life posting. People are going to die over there, they're going to get discharged over there or come back and if you can't take your wife then you'll have a hurried parting on the quayside at Portsmouth and that will be that. Um, and for many soldiers the most painful thing was was leaving. Um, if any of you are interested in military iconography, cat badges and collar dogs, a regiment that did 20-25 years in India usually got a Bengal tiger on its cap badge or collar dogs and I'm currently Colonel of the Princess of Wales' Royal Regiment nicknamed the Tigers and we wear a rather fine Bengal tiger on our left sleeves and that comes from the 67th Regiment spending a quarter of a century in India. So British units were there for a long time. Um, without people having, as I said, consciously decided to go to India. If you join the East India Company's army though you knew that you'd be going to India and you'd be going there for at least a quarter of a century. Now, two sorts of people joined the East India Company's army. If you had any influence, you joined as an officer. British commissions were bought. 
the East India Company's commissions are given by nomination. In other words, you need a friend at India House in Leadenhall Street in London. You need a friend, you need a friend who has a friend, you need a second cousin twice removed, you need someone who owes you a favour, you need somebody for whom one day you might do a favour, and that way you will get a commission for little Johnny. Free. When the future diarist William Hickey has behaved appallingly, appallingly, his poor papa, who's just lost his mother, his poor papa said, I, you know, I, William, I can't put up with this anymore. I have secured you a commission in, these, in the East India Company's army. Off you go. And, and, and young Hickey, of course, goes to India, hates it, and immediately comes back again. But you needed no prior training, and it was free. Now, the advantage of this is that with a little bit of influence, you can get a commission without money, and therefore the East India Company's offices tended to be from a slightly diff different end of the social scale. Once upon a time, the likes of me said they were completely different. It's not true, actually. But by and large, if we had a social spectrum, the further to this end we go, um, baronets, sons of peers, people with broad acres and money, they join the British Army. The further towards this end we go, um, in one case, trumpeter in a travelling circus, in another case, a barber who'd done well out of tips, they tend to be officers in the East India Company's army. And you could see why in India there was a bit of a sort of sniffiness. The East India Company's army took the view that it understood what you did in India, how you fought in India, uh, and that the Queen's regiments didn't really understand. The Queen's army took the view that the East India Company was not quite the thing, dressed oddly, was always on the edge of going native in a dangerous way and was rather jumped up. The, there's also another category of Indian of East India Company soldiers, and these are people who've joined the East India Company's army as private soldiers. They've joined the Company's Europeans. Each of the presidencies, Bengal and Bombay and Madras, maintains three battalions of European infantry. They tended to be, paradoxically, people who'd decided to join the, join the East India Company army for 25 years because the money was good, and there was a really good chance that if you got promoted, you get a job in that sort of artisan class which did so well in India. You'd become um, an ordnance sergeant, a conductor or subconductor. You'd become part of the sword-wearing middle class. You'd probably marry locally and you'd probably stay on after you took your discharge. So there we have British regiments in India, um, the East India Companies, Regiments. I, I'm not going to talk in any sense about the uh, about the Indian bit of the Indian Army, except that when it worked worked well and it worked well much of the time, there was a very close relationship between British officers in the Indian Army and the soldiers they commanded. It worked best in Georgian times, and it got less good as time went on. It worked best when. Um, Georgian officers tended in the nicest sort of way to intermarry. Now, I say in the nicest sort of way because there was no civil marriage in India, and therefore these were relationships which had got no legal sanction. Georgian officers often changed religion, at least notionally, in order to marry. They dressed like Willie Dalrymple's wonderful phrase, white moguls, when off duty. 
and they had a very close relationship with the soldiers that they commanded, often because they were living with the Subedar Major's sister. And if things weren't happy in the battalion, she'd say, um, look, if you go on like this, there's going to be a bit of a mutiny. I think you should see that the chaps get paid more promptly. Um, what spoils this is the increasing arrival in India of European women, which makes everybody, but particularly European women, sniffy um, about relationships with what were called bibis, Indian ladies. And missionaries also made it more difficult. Uh, and that as the 1820s and 1830s go on, those easy times of Georgian India, where you had multi-religious and polyglot gatherings, everybody got on well in a very matey way, have become a little bit more starchy. And you have officers' wives complaining that Captain so-and-so has got a dark lady. Uh, and when this happens, of course, that relationship which once existed between British and Indian soldiers begins to go because British officers are less close to the men that they command. I think that you would never have had the Indian mutiny in Georgian England, or in Georgian India, sorry, for example. But you do get it once you have the Bibis replaced by the Memsabs and lots of missionaries. Now, the, in, in case you think I, I've painted a, a very sort of gentle view of British soldiers in India, they are expected to justify their existence by fighting, and when they do, it's pretty bloody. They are kept going by a whole lot of things. Money, the cash, sorry, the cash nexus is awfully important. Um, prize money is hugely important. Uh, it's not just Richard O'Brien's naval heroes that get prize money. Soldiers got prize money too. Um, in, in 1817, 1818, the army of the Deccan got some 353,608 pounds, four shillings, and eight pence to, to divide up. And it was literally divided up with the commander in chief getting one eighth and a sliding scale which in, in, ensured that private soldiers got relatively little. The, the, you know, the argument was that they needed and deserved it far less. And so many private soldiers thoughtfully reckon that the best way of introducing some sanity into this was to make sure that the money didn't get into the prize pot first of all. So they should have stopped it by, we call it looting, which is very churlish because officers didn't loot, officers took souvenirs. <laughs> I've just obtained a, a wonderful diamond necklace as a souvenir and I shall send it home and pay off the mortgage with it. Um, but I'm afraid some of the soldiers have been looting, so I'll have to have them fall within an inch of their life. There was a sort of <laughs> slight view that officers were entitled to do this sort of thing, but soldiers weren't. Um, but huge amounts of money. The, 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 the capture of Lucknow in 1858, sorry, 1857, probably brought a million pounds of then prices in to the, uh, to the British Army. Um, battles, as I've said, were bloody, and they're made bloody not because Britain wins India, not because usually of any tactical subtlety or better equipment, but because in the last analysis, British soldiers have been hauled all the way to India when push comes to shove to advance under heavy fire and take the bayonet to the Queen's enemies. And that's what they do in most of the great battles, Chile and Walla and Gujarat and Sabran, that wins India for the British. Um, so you get 
shaved by the Napiwala, you get brought tea by the Charwala, you go out butterfly collecting, you have a wonderful time, but when bullets fly overhead, there's a very high probability of being killed. At the Battle of Assay in 1805, fought by the future Duke of Wellington, Wellington later in life, when he was an old man, somebody said, tell me, Duke, what was the best thing you ever did in the way of fighting? Wellington said, Assay. And at the end of that dreadful day, one-third of his soldiers had been killed or wounded. Um, if we look at the battles of the Sikh War at Chilean Walla, the 24th Regiment of Fort lost 500 of its soldiers, including 13 of its officers, stretched out that night on the polished mahogany mess table. Of the 3,700 soldiers who assaulted Delhi in 1857, 1,170 were hit in the first hour. So battles in India are costly, and you win them by the resolution of this deeply unfashionable soldier who you've hauled all the way from Britain. You feed him with arrack. You dress him in his red tunic with his cross belts, and when push comes to shove, he advances to a hail of fire. And if he does the business, then Indian units follow suit. There was a widespread recognition that you could not ask the Indian army to do what the British army wouldn't itself do. At the Battle of Maiwand, which is one of those colonial disasters, uh, one senior British officer, looking at the casualty figures, said that he wished it had been worse because we should all have been killed. Uh, in other words, ultimately, you hung on to this empire by being prepared to die. Well, of course, it wasn't just bullets that killed you. Drink helped. In 1833, 710 men of Her Majesty's 26th Regiment of Foot, recruiting substantially from Glasgow, I have to say, drank 5,320 gallons of arrack, 209 gallons of brandy, 249 gallons of gin, and 207 hogsheads of beer. I mean, this was a hard-drinking army. Um, it also pursued ladies with a fairly um, serious intent. And I, me I mentioned bibbies earlier on. And I have strong views about bibbies. I'm a huge fan of these wonderful ladies who sustain Georgian soldiers in India. And bibby has become a sort of rather snide expression. But let me just, just, just read you a, an epitaph put up by a Rajput lady over the grave of her husband. And she, and she, and remember, English would not have been her first language. She puts up over his grave, Hamish MacGregor Macpherson of Scotland, killed in battle at the head of his regiment while fighting against the Diwan Mulraj at Sudasham near Multan on the 1st of July, 1848. Wah! I've got no idea what the lady's name was, but goodness me, we should do more than write her off as a bibby. Uh, and an awful lot of these... Um, earlier officers that I said we might call mercenaries had wonderfully supportive wives. Um, William Gardner. Uh, William Gardner, in the service of a, an Indian Rajah, negotiating a treaty, while negotiating, saw a pair of dark eyes through the Zanana curtain at the back of the room. Uh, negotiated the treaty. At the end of it said, Rajah Saab, I've fallen in love with one of the ladies in your Zanana, uh, and I must marry her. Um, I've seen her eyes through the Zanana curtain, and I'll recognize those eyes anywhere, Raja Saab, so please don't try to deceive me. And the Raja said, well, my boy, it's my, it's my daughter. Um, and you're 
good fellow, so you can marry her. And, and indeed, this, this didn't simply start a uh, relationship, but a dynasty. And because William Gardner inherited his uncle's title, the present uh, Viscount Gardner um, seems to be living in an Indian village somewhere in Uttar Pradesh. Uh, so I'm very fond of the, the bibbies. Um, drink and bibbies between them, though, uh, helped kill you one way or indeed another. Um, there were huge epidemics in British India. In 1845, the 86 Regiment of Foot loses 238 soldiers in a single outbreak of cholera. 1833, the 70th loses 346 soldiers, 37 wives, 99 children. Um, shocking figures. And I've mentioned earlier on this, this sort of death rate in barracks, which is never less than 50 per thousand per year might easily be 70 per thousand per year, depending on what year we're looking at. And if we look at it on, on a smaller scale, uh, the future Lord Roberts loses his first daughter when she's a week old, his second daughter dies aboard ship buried at sea, he loses a boy aged three weeks, and he nearly lost his only son, Fred, his surviving son, Freddie, Freddie, only to lose him to ball rifle fire in 1900. So death is no respecter of persons. It snatches children out of the barrack yard, but it snatches children out of officers' bungalows too. Let me sum up. One of the pleasures of writing about India was that I'd, I'd been there quite a lot, and I finished up riding a curmudgeonly grey Afghan pony from the Chinese border at the head of the Hunza Valley, down the Hunza Valley to Gilgit, over the Shandu Pass to Chitral, and then finishing up in Peshawar, um, which really gave me a wonderful impression as to what our ancestors put up with. But he also gave an impression of the way in which the Indian subcontinent airbrushes all of this away. Two million of the people I've been talking about lie in nameless and untraceable graves. Some of them came back. Kipling calls them one of ten millions plus a CIA commander of the Indian Empire. Um, and, you, and you will have met them. You will have had relatives who've got pig-sticking spears in the whole sand, those big elephant feet umbrella stands, um, kudu heads in the hall, Indian tulwars rusting, and as they grow older they um, drift into using more and more expressions like bunduk and charpoy and shouting koi when they want something done. Um, but they've gone, in a sense, like a dream. And let me finish with an Indian quote about us. This is an old chief talking to that boy Neville Chamberlain running Hazara the size of Wales. The old chief tells him, Many conquerors like the storm have swept over us, and they've passed away, leaving only a name, and so it will be with you. We poor people are like the grass. We remain. We lift our heads again. And so I think it was with British India. Um, we went there, we did so much, we made such an impact. And now to find us, you have to rub away the lichen in cantonment cemeteries. One of the pleasures of travelling in India, though, is that we're often better remembered, perhaps, by the people who still live, live there, than people like me would, somewhat, would sometimes want you to believe. Thank you. Thank you.